he's a part of you. Just like he's a part of me. From the things I've done. It's not my place to forgive you for all of it. But what I can forgive, I do. You don't need to choose. You're a great joy. And you're a star. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Cast of Kings, an unofficial podcast about the HBO original series Game of Thrones. I'm David Chen, and I haven't read most of the books in George R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire. I'm Joanna Robinson. I've read every book in George R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire. Welcome to the show, everyone. What we do here on this podcast is we recap every episode of HBO's Game of Thrones, um, but we don't spoil anything. That includes any from, anything from the books or anything on the next time on preview uh, of Game of Thrones. Uh, that HBO sometimes shows. This week we'll be recapping Season 7, Episode 7, The Dragon and the Wolf, the season finale of Season 7 of Game of Thrones. This one was directed by Jeremy Podeswa and written by Benioff and Weiss. Uh, And I do want to make a couple of announcements before we get things off the ground. First of all, this is not the final episode of uh, A Cast of Kings this season. We are going to be doing a bonus mailbag episode uh, next week where we're basically going to talk about overall thoughts on the season. We're going to talk about things that we forgot to talk about in this episode because we are going to forget to talk about some things this episode. Guarantee it. There's so much to cover. Um, and most importantly, we're going to talk about your emails to a cast of kings at gmail.com. And uh, if you want to write in to a cast of kings at gmail.com and potentially get your email read to our audience, uh, consider answering the following questions. Here are some questions we want to ask you guys. We want to hear what you think about this, okay? Rather than just writing in, you know, stream of consciousness, uh, answer the following questions. Uh, what would you have liked to have seen in Season 7 that maybe you didn't? Like, what was one thing you really missed or what was one thing you thought they could have taken more time in? Um, another question, uh, predictions for final season. What do you think is going to happen? Um, what, how do you think the show is going to end? Uh, and Joanna, there's no possible way to spoil this, right? Because there's no book, right? The scripts haven't been leaked for season eight, right? Like no one knows anything, right? Here's a couple things I'll say. You could speculate based on some like book ideas out there, but that's not spoiling that speculation as far as I'm concerned because nobody knows anything. There are some fake season eight out season eight spoilers out there but they are a a very well placed source told me they are all fake so there are no real season eight leaks out there no chance of spoiling unless you are david benios or db weiss and you are writing into us which you wouldn't do so right uh so final season predictions and on that note characters that you want to see make it through all the way to the end or characters that you uh think will die uh, in the final season. And why? Don't just write in a list of characters. Like, kind of explain why you think they might make it all the way through to the end or explain why you think they might die or why it would make the show better or more interesting if they survived or if they died. Uh, so, yeah, those are a few questions to to get your mind jogging about this. Um, so what would you like to have seen in Season, se- uh, season 7? Uh, final season predictions. Who do you think will make it through to the end? Who do you think will die for Season 8? Email us at acastofkings at gmail.com and... Uh, that's what we're going to be going through next week, uh, and we hope you'll download that episode. We're really grateful to have a sponsor for that episode. Uh, so, yeah, tune in next week to hear the 
conclusion of A Cast of Kings this year. And, and speaking of conclusion, we should also mention that uh, a lot of people might be wondering, like, when is Game of Thrones going to be coming back? When is Cast of Kings going to be coming back? Six episodes of Game of Thrones remain forever. And no one knows when those episodes will come out, right? Uh, they, they have hinted that it will probably be in 2019, right? Or right. I'm sorry, uh, is that 20? Yeah, 2019. Because they're shooting in October all the way through like August of 2018. And by the time oh, you're in I August. Thought oh, April. I thought it, I heard they were shooting October through April. But that they're um, I, and I could be wrong. Maybe the August date you said is right. But that their post production schedule is going to be very long because, um, first of all, they're doing these like supersized feature length uh, episodes. Some news that Dave Chen broke out of Con of Thrones this summer. Yeah. And uh, you know, given what we saw in this episode, if we're gonna see like this great war to come, battle of the army of the dead and the living and stuff like that gonna take some cgi so yeah i i think uh 29 i think we should all like let's just all bank on 2019 and then if it comes early we get pleasantly surprised you know yeah so. sorry i meant to say uh like uh production overall i think was gonna be oh, august okay. but yeah but i think uh you're, you're right about shooting versus like post-production and visual effects and stuff uh it's gonna be a very long production schedule so uh, it's very likely we won't come back until 2019. That's a long time. That's like a year and a half, right? But if you like hearing us talk about TV shows and you want to get caught up on Westworld, uh, you can probably listen probably listen to us talk about that <laughs> In, on our podcast. Decoding Westworld at decodingwestworld.com. There you go. Uh, which, which is probably coming back in 2017, although no date has been announced yet, right? Uh, 20, 2018, I believe. Oh, yeah, yeah, sorry. Uh, wait, what year is it right now? It's 2017. 2017. Right? Yeah, so 20, <laughs> 2018 is when Westworld's coming back. Uh, but, you know, that show, uh, it's not unprecedented for that show to suffer from delays, Joanna, is what I hear. So who knows when that's going to come back. But, yeah, presumably. Okay, so you're telling me we should do a Young Sheldon podcast. That's right. That's right. Okay. Uh, right. More like the deuce, but maybe. Anyway. Uh, okay. So, uh, w- you know. Cast Kings comes back probably 2019. Decoding Westworld comes back probably 2018. Um, but, uh, of course, we will have next week's uh, season review roundup as well. Uh, so that's the future uh, that is in store for this podcast and, uh, and my work with Joanna Robinson. Uh, but before we get to this week's episode and, and recap it, a lot of, lot of stuff to talk about, uh, I, I do want to just acknowledge, you know, obviously last week's episode uh, not only was a polarizing episode of game of thrones uh also a polarizing episode of the podcast i mean uh, you, you know how i knew it was a polarizing episode of game of thrones Joanna, is uh on adult swim uh, uh i think during rick and morty they had this like uh, yeah. in memoriam title yeah. card that said like the writing on game of thrones 2011 to 2016 yes that that was like savage right that's just brutal assessment pretty rough yeah yeah um and well we should say before you turn off this episode of the podcast we actually quite liked this finale so this is not going to be round two of what last week was correct correct um but But, we i know that a lot of people uh quit the podcast so they're not listening right now yeah they're Um, not who we're talking to they're not who we're talking to (laughs) Uh, and let us know about it. But thank you guys for sticking around. Yeah, if you're still uh, around, the, it means you weren't one. Down. Yeah, you weren't one of the ones that uh, quit by definition. I mean, uh, you know, I'll just say that uh, this podcast has always been about us 
offering brutally honest opinions about the show. And, and I think longtime listeners know that. And this year we got a lot of new listeners and maybe some of them weren't used to that. But uh, we really appreciate those of you who have stuck with us uh, this season. I, I feel like uh, this season of the podcast has been some of the, uh, the work that I've enjoyed doing with John Robinson the most. Uh, and so appreciate people listening. appreciate Joanna Robinson for doing this with me. That being said, uh, I do want to cop to one thing that I said last week that I deeply regret. Uh, and Joanna, I don't know if you remember this, but uh, last week I talked about how we shouldn't judge people's grief. You know, like people should express their grief in wh- whatever way they want. It's a deeply personal thing. People express grief in different ways. And I gave the examples of Patton Oswalt as a terrible time when uh, people were judging someone's grief. And I said, well, I'm going to disregard that uh, and judge uh, Danny's grief uh, because she's a fictional character and that makes it okay. Uh, guess what, Joanna? That doesn't make it okay. Um, yeah. We got a bunch of emails in from a lot of people sharing stories of their own grief, uh, writing yeah. into castkings@gmail.com. And you know we sh- we appreciate people sharing openly and honestly. But the uh, the overall thrust of those emails was people's grief is intensely personal, and how they deal with the loss of a child or a friend uh, is very very different depending on the person. And you, David Chen, should not judge someone's grief uh, because just because they react a different way than you would doesn't mean that their grief is somehow invalid or it's incorrect in some way. Uh, and so. Point taken. Uh, I I wish I could you know retract that statement. I think you guys are completely right. And reading those emails, those very personal emails written to castingkings at gmail uh, really drove that point home. So uh, so that is the one thing from last week that mm-hmm. I regret talk like saying. Everything else still completely valid in my opinion. But yeah. I will I will take back that one thing. I, d- I, I just wanted to chime in and, and, and also thank everyone for sending in some really very personal stories. Uh, that was, I, I was really touched that you guys shared those with us. So, yeah. it, you know, thank you for that. Yeah. Lesson learned, like, you know, people's grief is intensely, it's, it's intensely personal and, you know, it, people will grieve in a different way than you do and that grief is not invalid or, uh, or lesser than because it's different. Um, all right. Couple other follow-ups you want to make, John Robinson? Uh, something about dragon naming, right, from last week? Yeah, um, you know, we had someone write in uh, to ask us a question about the the various dragon names on on the show and whether or not they we we thought they might have some significance. So let me read this email out. Uh, this is from Alan. Alan did not say where he's writing from. Please do that if you remember. Uh, Alan wrote, hello, I'm already pining for both Game of Thrones and this excellent podcast, and I haven't even heard the last episode yet. Um, and then he said some really nice things, uh, especially, uh, you know, this this emailer, Alan, mentions the email we read last week about the steak and popcorn analogy. And I just want to say that we got so much feedback about that particular analogy. So for the person who wrote that email, the steak and popcorn email, just, just know that your metaphor resonated with a lot of people. Yeah, we're going to okay. be dining out on that email for a long time. <laughs> on that steak and popcorn email. Yep. Uh, but Alan writes, a thought occurred to me when watching the finale. Is it significant that the first dragon to die and to be converted to the Night King's cause is named for the weak and venal Viserys? That's Viserion, the dragon. And if so, does that mean that the others, named for more heroic characters, will do better? 
As we now know for sure, Rhaegar is unambiguously heroic. Can we extrapolate any clues from the face of the people they were named for? Will they die in reverse order to those which gave them their names? Will Ice Zombie Viserion die at Jamie's golden hand? I'm probably reading far too much into this, but can't help but fall down this rabbit hole of speculation. Thanks again for your company on my commute, Alan. Um, so I just want to mention a couple things. Um, this, this is something I think that's been bandied about since Viserion went down like a chump. Sorry. R.I.P. Viserion last week is like, yeah, what was naming Viserion after her terrible brother Viserys a bad move on Danny's part? And uh, this is our weakest dragon. Um, I don't know about that, but what I do know is now that we know for certain that Rhaegar is Jon's father, I like the idea of Rhaegul, the dragon named for his father, being his dragon. So there's a lot of speculation that Jon's going to ride a dragon. Makes a lot of sense that it would be the one name for his dad. Uh, do you have any um, thoughts or questions about dragon names, Dave Chen? Uh, I actually don't. I think you, okay. you put it well right there. I, I, I have questions about John's true name, but we'll get to that uh, later in the episode. And uh, and Allison Nettles in the chat room asks, is Rhaegar heroic there? Trust me, Allison, I will get to that. I, I have some... Rhaegar heroism questions of my own, for sure. All right, that's it for follow-ups. Let's dive into this week's episode, Season 7, Episode 7, The Dragon and the Wolf. This episode begins with King's Landing, and uh, it took me a while to get my bearings, Jonna. Uh, you know, we see Grey Worm and the Unsullied outside the walls of some location. We see Jamie and Braun uh, chatting it up. And the last time we saw Grey Worm was at Casterly Rock, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yeah. Where he was so- not in a good state. Right. You know, like if we want to fill in the gaps, we can presume that because Daenerys in in the episode Spoils of War sort of took out all the Lannister forces that were on the road between Casterly Rock and King's Landing, it's possible Grey Worm and the Unsullied just marched from Casterly Rock to King's Landing. It's still very odd that they just like left him there in the middle of the season and then all of a sudden he's outside of the King's Landing wall, especially when that wall sort of looked very Casterly Rock-esque. So right. I, I found it slightly disorienting. There were a few establishing shots of sort of the red keep far in the background but um but yeah it was it was a little it was a little bit of a disorienting opening but we did see a lot a big show of force we saw the dothraki come in we see the iron fleet uh in you know parked in the blackwater bay my favorite part of all of that i mean that you know braun and jamie are having their like banter banter moment but my favorite part is that when the dothraki show up like jamie legit has ptsd he has dothraki <laughs> ptsd he's like oh my god the horse lords are here oh no and uh we see that again from jamie later when the dragon shows up but i really liked that i thought that was very appropriate for jamie to be quite skittish uh to be reminded of that battle from a few weeks ago seeing uh the dothraki right in it's really stark the difference in battle styles between the unsullied and, and the dothraki uh in a way that's like very visually striking i found yeah. um jamie and Braun share a, a nice little moment together uh, and the following phrase is spoken, maybe it really is all cocks in the end, which I thought was a wonderful meta commentary on the show itself. I don't know if you felt the same way. Um, but uh, like, like the, the, the show is in you know, many ways, uh, I don't know, patriarchal and, uh, or, or about oh. the patriarchy and like toppling the patriarchy and, and also like much reference is made to characters' genitalia in the show. Um, so anyway, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sensing that's not resonating with you. I'll move on. Um, 
So think, here's here's I'll think about it and I'll give you my my all my cock thoughts uh, in next week's episode. Looking forward to that. Um, <laughs> okay, so we also see Euron's fleet is in the bay, so he's going to be at this big meeting. So Tyrion and Jon and the rest of the team Targaryen arrive via boat, uh, and you see the Hound checking on uh, the White, who uh, miraculously has survived this long trip uh, down. Thank God, because if that White died, then this whole thing would be so pointless, even more so than in some ways it was already. Uh, and Kyburn tells Cersei that Daenerys isn't with the rest of, of Team Dargarian, that uh, you know uh, she's running a little bit late. So uh, there's all these uh, walk and talks that happen. We see all these characters meet up again. Um, there's banter between Brienne and the Hound, which I thought was just delightful. You know, it's yeah. like... Uh, it's like two divorced parents kind of talking about the kid they're raising together, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, like yeah. They they are very different people. They are not in each other's lives, but they both love this kid, even if they have very different ideas of what direction her life should take. Uh, and you know, I I just thought that shared affection was just lovely to see. Yeah. Um. There's banter between uh, Braun and Tyrion and Pod, and like you realize, oh yeah, all these characters like knew each other. They had all these adventures together. Uh, it was great. Is there any part of this, these walking talks you want to highlight that, that uh, resonated with you specifically, Jonna? Well, it was, it was interesting listening to the, uh, you know, they did a couple extra videos. HBO produced a couple extra videos to go with this. There's the traditional sort of inside the episode video, and then they did an anatomy of the scene of the dragon pit. And in both, the writers talked about something that they've been talking about all season, which is the challenge of bringing together all these characters who haven't seen each other for a couple seasons, acknowledging their history, but not like boring us all with exposition about it. And, you know, they talked about, they've been very open that it was a huge challenge for them. They've been very open about how they couldn't like, they couldn't have characters cover everything. So like, for example, last week it was frustrating to me that John and Gendry and the Hound were all together, but none of them talked about Arya who they all quite know very, you know, know very well because they were, talking about their dads or whatever. So um, I thought the Hound and Brienne was like maybe my favorite example of them successfully pulling off a like, let's reference some shared history, but not get, you know, um, bogged down in it. And um, yeah. And overall I thought these walk and talks were more successful than the ones we saw last week. Um, And a lot of that has to do with like, they're not having to battle elements or anything like that. They're just strolling down the road in King's landing. So um, it just felt more natural, I suppose. Yeah. I thought it was a great series of conversations and, uh, you know, I, I'm going to try really hard to not bring up my thoughts on, you know, the whole bringing the whites to Cersei scheme. Um, but I will say that if one of the impacts of that plan was to have all these characters interact again and recap things again and, and hang out again uh, to some degree, to a small degree, it was worth it, I think, because uh, I think these scenes – we're just delightful, and and it's like the whole gang is back together again, and some new people that have, we've never seen together are together, and it's really kind of exciting on a very visceral level. Yeah. So uh, anyway, uh, they arrive in the uh, dragon pit, uh, and Bron and Pod go have a drink. Right? They just are like they peace out of there. Yeah. Uh, so what was up with that, Joanna? Okay, so I I wanted to add this. 
usually I don't like to trade in salacious gossip. You know me. I don't do that. But uh, this is something that someone brought up to me last week and I dismissed it. And then this week pretty much confirms it. What I was told last week by a listener, I think, or a reader, uh, is, is a bit of go- a well-known gossip that I didn't know, which is that Jerome Flynn and Lita Headey used to date. So the actor who plays Braun and the actress who plays Cersei used to date. It has been reported by actually reputable outlets that these two refuse to be on set together. So the show will do weird contortions sometime to make sure that Braun and Cersei are never in the same place together. And I believe I didn't believe that last week. I was like, that sounds like some nasty gossip and I don't like it. And then this week, Braun's like, we're going to go get a drink shortly before Cersei arrives in the dragon pit. Well, and then you Bye. never and then you never hear from them for the rest of the episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that that was what was weird to me was it's fine for them to go get a drink, but then you never hear from them. I, I thought it was yeah. the show's way of saying we don't want to deal with these characters this episode. Yeah, I I thought that too because there's other characters that just sort of disappear. Like, I don't know, Missandei has like one um, – the, the use of Missandei this season is baffling. But yeah, I also thought they were like maybe like the contracts max us out at this many named characters in one scene together or something. I have no idea. But I think it might be this this sort of personal history thing, which is fascinating to me. So there you go. Yeah. That is probably why Braun and Pod went to go get a drink in this episode. That is interesting. And yeah, you I, I don't think you've ever seen a scene with Braun and Cersei in the same place, right? In the whole show. I, I don't think so. So yeah. yeah. So Team Lannister shows up. Uh, it's Cersei, Jamie, Euron, Kyburn, and the Mountain. Uh, people are super pissed at each other. They're very like tense, extremely tense. Um, and then the Hound just goes straight up to to the mountain and threatens him. Now, there's a lot of questions about this, Joanna. I have a lot of questions. He says, you know what's coming for you, right? Something like that. Yeah. What was he talking about? Um, I know from the interviews with Rory McCann and the showrunners that this is uh, – Rory McCann, the actor who plays the Hound, this is the Hound threatening the mountain, saying, like, I am going to get you eventually. Today is not that day. But eventually I'm going to be the one who kills you. Now, the reason I think there was confusion is the writing is a little dodgy there. Like, it, it made a lot of people think that this was some sort of, like, mystical thing that the Hound had seen in the fire. Right. Or related to Arya somehow or something like that. But, you know, the Hound says, you know what's coming. You've always known. Um, and so he's talking about himself, which means that the uh, the long-hoped-for fan theory of Clegamble, which is the mountain fighting the hound, I stopped believing in it. I'm a believer again. Mm. Uh, I'm back I'm back on this train. Um, the idea that the Clegane brothers will fight each other to the death at some point before this story is over. The reason I was sort of out on this theory was because I didn't think it would be very satisfying emotionally to watch the hound destroy someone who was like a zombie, not really his brother. You know, this isn't the same person who shoved his face into the fire when he was a kid. But in that same scene that we're talking about right now, the hound says, are you still in there? Yeah, I see you are. You're still there. Like he established that there is still some of Gregor in this zombie character. And so trying to sort of restore stakes to their eventual um, showdown. So there you go. Gotcha. Uh, Very useful answer. Thank you for that. Um, So uh, also in the, in the, uh, after the uh, episode interview, uh, what the creator, the showrunners are trying to convey is that 
there are some people who, when in this situation, are not going to wait for other people to move things at a at a official clip, and the hound would be one of those people that just doesn't give a fuck about formalities. So that's why they wanted to get that out of the way right up front, which I thought was uh, it was true to the character. I thought true to the character. Kind of true to the character, also a little bit of fan service, yes, right? Because, like, you know, a lot of fans have been wanting to watch Gregor and Sandor Clegane fight each other. And so to to at least even – even if they never do it in Season 8, which I think they have to now, but even if they never do, like, this is a nod towards it for the fans. So um, – and the show has been dinged a lot by people for having too much fan service this season. Like, I didn't like that whole rowing joke that Davos had a couple episodes ago for Gendry, which was definitely fan service. Um, but I didn't mind this at all. I, qu- I quite liked it. So, Yeah. So Cersei wants to know why Danny's not there. Danny shows up on Drogon in, uh, I thought, a fairly spectacular entrance. Uh, and then, as you point out, Jamie sees a dragon and, and again, is uh, uh, has PTSD about the first time he got attacked. He was almost killed by a dragon. Um, I thought, like, people's reactions were kind of interesting. Like, I, I would have expected more from Cersei's crew. I guess they were all instructed to not have a reaction to seeing this myth- like mythical creature show up in a massive way. Um, instead, she seems completely unfazed, which, again, true to character. Uh, and she's pretty upset that Danny showed up late. Uh, go ahead, Joanna. What were you going to say? Oh, yeah. I think Lena Headey said that she was – that Cersei was trying – to look unimpressed. Right. She's trying so hard and it was really difficult because Drogon is very impressive when he shows up. Yeah. But yeah. she's trying to keep like as still as possible and like, oh, you have a dragon? Yawn. I have a zombie. It's fine. This is fine. Oh, you have a zombie too. Mm. Mm. Okay. Tough mm. one. <laughs> uh, so then, you know, you, you start to, to the point I just made about who would not wait for people to start the meeting. Euron just starts taunting Theon and Tyrion like right off the bat. Uh, Jamie has to tell him to sit down. Cersei like threatens him like with leaving and stuff, uh, and that's when John and Tyrion start to make their case. It's very tense, very tense. A lot of silence. Uh, feels like no one really uh, wrote out an agenda for this meeting, which you know, if you're from the corporate world, you know, is just a killer for productivity. I kind of, I kind of disagree. Well, we we'll get to the part, but I feel like there was def- there was definitely a rehearsal that happened. It might not have been at this preamble, but once that white comes out of the box, like everyone knows what they're supposed to do. Right, right, right. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I'm just saying the meeting took a little while to get going. Yeah, you know? yes, that's there all I'm you saying. go. That's all I'm yes. saying. Yes. So then uh, the hound, uh, well, the, you know, they John and Tyrion start to make their case and. Um, Danny and Cersei exchange tense words. The Hound comes up with this box, this thing that we've been working towards for the last, the previous two episodes, and opens the box. And for a second, you almost think the White has died, which would I just would have been so pissed if that happened. Mm-hmm. But nope, the White emerges and uh, comes and attacks Cersei, only to be held back you know, by a chain that the Hound has, with perfect precision calculated, will not reach Cersei. Right. Um and the hound Your hacks sarcasm. it. Sarcasm. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the hound hacks at it, but it doesn't die. He cuts off an arm. The arm's still alive. Pro- probably my second favorite part of the episode is when he cuts off that arm. Kyburn does not yes. even blink. Just Kyburn gets up, walks just, straight towards it. 
Yes. And he's like, what can I learn from this zombie? Oh, the zombie's faster than mine. Um, yeah, I love Kyburn's sort of scientific inquiry into the zombie that's here. It was so good. Such an awesome character moment, you know, like yeah. that they've established that Kyburn is fascinated by this kind of these kind of dark arts. And uh, it's it's such a great performance, too. You know, like it's it's pure curiosity. It's not malice or it's just like this guy wants to know what the hell is going on here. Um, and he's as usual with everything else he does, does it in a really creepy way. I loved it. So, um, so then, I thought the, and I thought the special effects on this, on this white, this particular zombie, uh, you know, the, the disembodied hand, the cut in half, the, like, even just the running with like the rib cage showing. Cause usually when we see these zombies in the past on the show, they've been in the snow, um, like covered a bit by like the covered of uh, covered by weather a bit. And this is the first time we've seen one of them like in full sunlight. And I thought it looked super good. I thought it was great. I thought the sound mix was great. I really, well, really liked well, it. Overall, so. I thought this whole sequence did a lot to sell. <laughs> it did a lot to sell the idea that this mission might've been worth it. Ah, you know? mm. Uh, of course, we later find out that no, what I suspected <laughs> all along was correct, that it was completely pointless and the dragon died for nothing. Um, but the scene, like as the scene was unfolding, I thought to myself, oh, wow, like may- maybe Cersei will actually buy this. Um, and so I actually thought the scene was really well directed. Sure, there was false starts and... You know, like the, he opens up the dragon in a kind of cheesy horror movie thing. Like it comes out at the last minute and no one goes to protect Cersei like the Secret Service or the Mountain might do. Um, so it's not like a perfect scene, but I thought that overall I, it was like a well-directed kind of quasi-horror scene uh, that did a lot to sell the concept of the plan. Like like when Tyrion and John and whoever in that in that room were cooking up this cockamamie plan – this was kind of what they had imagined. Like I could see this is what they imagined this meeting going like. Yeah. And uh and overall, you know, I thought like if the meeting had went a little bit better, they would have actually accomplished what they set out to do. So uh all right. So I thought direction was great. You know, we talked about like how even scenes with ridiculous premises, if with good direction, uh can be saved. And I thought this is a perfect example of that. So so then Davos, John, and the Hound demonstrate that you can only kill this thing with fire or dragon glass. Uh, here's another question, Joanna Robinson. Uh, Valerian steel? How does that does that like can they kill it with Valerian steel as well, or is that only for the the uh, White Walkers? I have to imagine that Valerian steel would work on a white. Yeah, but they've gone out of their way this season a couple times to say it's just fire and dragon glass. Right. Um, I would have to go back and rewatch last week's episode to see like what effect John's sword had on the whites, but I imagine it must work on them. But we we know it can shatter a White Walker. Um, I just think it's weird that they haven't talked about it at all this season, and like I feel like I feel like if John were fully aware as he should be that his Valyrian steel sword can shatter White Walkers. He should be like saying, not only do we need to drum up as much dragon glass as possible, we should start rounding up the Valyrian steel swords too. Um, but I feel like I guess that's something they're saving for season eight or something like that. But 
It's my long-winded answer. But this is the part of the demonstration that I really feel like they did practice on the boat to King's Landing where John's like, all right, Davos, then you'll step forward with the torch and then you'll light it and I'll hold it and I'll light the hand. And then yeah, they clearly I'll... did a lot to get the blocking <laughs> right on this demonstration. I'll stab the white with my awesome dagger. Um, so, yeah. Anyway, uh, John does have a really cool dragon glass dagger with like a bone handle uh, that you can see on, I think the blog is called makinggameofthrones.com. They have a lot of like props and costumes and stuff like that on there. And so you can see the close up detail on the dragon glass dagger. It's very cool. Uh, it would have been cool to know about it in last week's episode, but um, here it is now. It looks great. Yeah. So then, uh, now that the legitimacy of the white has been proven, uh, Danny says she saw at least 100,000 of them. Euron asks if they can swim, uh, and John explains they can't. We saw they couldn't swim at Hardhome. That was a nice moment. Like, um, I, I like how memorable that moment was at Hardhome because it kind of, in some ways, led to this moment where he explains they can't swim. And Euron, in a... Uh, rather baffling decision says hey screw you guys i'm going home uh and he says like i'm terrified of these things which goes against everything we know about euron thus far who's like a very uh pugnacious and uh very proud and arrogant and cocky and of course we all we learn later that this was all a show that he worked out with cersei uh earlier on which makes literally no sense. Sorry. I mean, I've been very positive on this episode so far, but the Euron Cersei that that this was a plan between Euron Cersei the whole time makes no sense to me. Well, uh, okay, we can talk more about it in a bit. I, I think it's it makes sense except for the part where they wait for Tyrion to come meet Cersei. Um, but anyway, Cersei says the truth. The truth is fine. So my mind is exploding because I don't actually believe that would happen. Um, but whatevs, she says it, it was a well-directed scene, so maybe, maybe. Uh, but she, she demands that John commit the North to a neutral position. So that's when I'm like, oh, well, maybe I would actually buy that. I would actually buy that Cersei would offer truce in exchange for the North uh, being in a neutral position. Uh, John says he's already pledged to Danny, and everyone gets super pissed, including Danny. Yeah. Um, even though she spent you know many episodes trying to get him to bend the knee, she realized that, hey, you just got to lie at this moment. Buy us some time, dude. Yeah. Um, Cersei's furious and storms out of the meeting. Brienne tries to reason with Jamie. That's like the only interaction they have, I think. Uh, and you know, Jamie is unswayed. Tyrion says he'll try to talk to his sister and, and runs off after him. I really liked this Brienne moment because... You know, this is this is the first that Brienne is seeing of the undead. Like most of the people on like sort of Team Targaryen, Team Stark are familiar with the zombies, but Brienne and Pod, along with Team Lannister, are seeing uh, this for the first. Well, Pod's not there. Brienne, along with Team Lannister, is seeing this for the first time, and it really shakes her. I think, and so this is a very non-Brienne thing to say. Brienne is all a about loyalty right it's like, about like rules and honor and that yeah. that's her number one code so when she's like fuck loyalty she's like did you just see what i just saw like let's 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 cast all that aside and just deal with the real threat here so i thought that was an interesting character moment for her yeah. and also you know gwendolyn christie in, in one of the you know the making of the anatomy of the scene she was like uh brand would fight the hound a million times again rather than be in the same room with Jamie and Cersei again, like that that's her living hell. And they had, you know, like a couple nice glances exchanged. There's a lot of glancing 
in this particular scene. And they had some, some very loaded glancing between them. But, um, I really like that, that this is, this is a real vulnerability for Bran. She can fight people, but like the, like Cersei really knocked her for a loop. I think at Joffrey's wedding and, uh, you know, Jamie has always sort of been a weakness for her. So I, I, that was all very interesting to me. I love that character. She's underused the last few seasons, so I will take any little bit of Brienne I can get. So, Jamie. It's been good to see you. I imagine the next time we'll be across the battlefield. We both saw what just happened. We both saw that thing. Yes, and I'm not looking forward to seeing more of them. I'm loyal to the Queen, and you're loyal to sons and adult brothers. Oh, fuck loyalty. Fuck loyalty. This goes beyond houses and honor and oaths. Talk to the Queen. And tell her what? I'm in the I'm in the same boat as you. Um, so Jamie says goodbye to Tyrion. Uh, like Tyrion arrives at the castle, you know, and Jamie and Tyrion exchange words. Says goodbye. Um, it, it it is kind of a poignant moment. You don't know if you're ever going to see them together again. And Cersei and Tyrion have a talk. Uh, he realizes that she's pregnant. He challenges her to have the mountain kill him. Uh, and me, David Chen, I'm thinking like this is this is it for Tyrion. That's a wrap for Tyrion. I mean, Cersei had earlier on this episode authorized the mountain to kill Tyrion if anything went wrong at the meeting. So right. now that Tyrion's right there, she hates his guts. Why wouldn't she just kill him right there? Uh, so. What do you make of it? I mean, like the whole plan is she goes back, she tricks them into thinking that she's on their side. I guess my question is, why not uh, just trick them into thinking they're on your side right then and there? Why wait for Tyrion? Like, what if Tyrion didn't go after you? She wants – well, yeah, I I don't know about that. Um, I mean, I think she was genuinely pissed. Sure. Like – her long con is to say that she'll help them and not help them. That's true. But maybe she like lost control of her temper because she was super pissed about the whole Jon Snow thing. Um, and then the added bonus is then when Tyrion comes to see her, then she gets not, to not only like the plan is back in play, but to make Tyrion look like an asshole. <laughs> Right, like she, Tyrion comes in and like is the hero because he like successfully negotiated this deal. Uh, when it turns out she she played him. Right. And so um, Benioff was saying in, in like the behind the scenes, he was saying that, um, you know, uh, Tyrion thinks he he, ca- he he calls her bluff or he sees her through her cars or something like that. Like he figures out she's pregnant, and blah, blah. And then Benioff was saying that um, Cersei wanted him to do that, like that she was holding her her belly, her pregnant belly. And I do believe Cersei's pregnant, guys, but she was holding her pregnant belly like hoping that he would see that there's also a lot of questions you know that scene catch like cuts off when Tyrion goes oh you're pregnant and then the scene cuts off and then we cut back to the dragon pit and because that scene is cut off a lot and and because of Tyrion's weird stuff later which we'll talk about there have been a lot of fans who are like did Tyrion strike a secret deal with Cersei um has he struck it did he strike a deal that like her baby gets to succeed Daenerys on the throne because, you know, like all this sort of stuff. And I'm like, I don't think that's the case. I think the scene was cut off there to uh, extend suspense into the scene that directly follows it. I don't think there's any sort of like backroom deal that happened off screen. That being said, there's a lot of backroom deals that happen off screen in this episode later. So I can't say for certain, but my heart says that Tyrion did not, sort of betray Daenerys in that scene and, and, and he doesn't have the authority to make that 
kind of deal anyway. So that doesn't make any sense to me. That being said, sometimes things don't make sense on the show. So I wasn't a fan of this scene. Uh, and Max Reed, the journalist and writer, uh, captured a little bit about what I didn't like about it on Twitter. The scene between Tyrion and Cersei? Correct. Oh, he says the most annoying scene in last night's Game of Thrones, out of many annoying scenes, was the Cersei Tyrion scene. Five minutes of two characters that we know extremely well, basically just reiterating their motivations to one another. Suddenly, new information is introduced. Cersei's pregnant. How will this change the dynamic between Tyrion and Cersei at this moment of great tension? We won't know because we smash cut to Cersei marching out. We have no idea what was said, how the relationship changed or evolved. And then, as if to add insult to injury, we learn later that Cersei was full of shit, retroactively making the whole scene a waste of time. I One disagree. Sorry, sorry. Uh, yeah, okay. I, I want to hear your disagreement. But one, he, he continues, One advantage of being off book is that the writers don't need to follow every side quest that George R. R. Martin so lovingly and irritatingly creates. But a straight line path to the finish where plot just happens with no work being done to support it is even worse and less compelling. The little finger twists operate in the same way. Hours wasted with no actual work done to support the plot through character or context. Was thinking in the final scene about George R. R. Martin's use of Howland Reed as a background figure that close readers understand to be vitally important. Howland Reed's the only person on Westeros who knows who John's parents are. We know that. No one else does. Dramatic tension. But he comes by that knowledge in an honest way and is unable to share it for honest reasons. And this makes the tension real and palpable. In the show, there's no tension. Brandon's exposition on wheels and there's no honest or consistent system around what he knows or doesn't. All right. Anyway, that, get, that gets into a lot of other issues of the episode. Yeah. But um, uh, okay. This, uh, this scene, why do you think it was not a waste of time? God, I loved this scene. This is like maybe – I don't know, top three favorite scenes of the episode. Uh, two of my top scenes involves Lena Headey, Cersei. I think she her performance is amazing. I think Peter Dinklage's performance is amazing. I didn't like the, the, the you know, cutting it off abruptly and moving to the next scene, but that's an issue with, like, transition more than the actual scene itself. Um, them discussing Marcella and Tommen in a substantive way, which the show had so far avoided with Tyrion, which had really irritated me. So then, like... It irritated me that they waited to do it, but like the fact that they did it here, it was so good. Lena Headey and Peter Dinklage were always such good scene partners in earlier seasons, and um, I just really felt like it felt like it, it felt like we it hadn't been years since we'd seen them in a room together. And um, they've done so like you know if you want to talk about background work, they've done so much work with this relationship on this show uh, over the first you know four seasons. That I just I thought it worked so well uh, to find out later that Cersei was playing him doesn't bother me because that that was sort of like part of the course always of their relationship uh, that they were playing each other always. So um, I don't yeah, know. And, I, and I, I guess I, it, does, I really it, it. Yeah. it does make sense that she doesn't kill him because if she kills him, then her whole plan uh, would not work. But, right, and not and not killing him is part of her ploy, where she's like she could kill him, but like not killing him makes him look like a bigger fool in the end, right? Like this is her selling her whole right. plan. So yeah, John and Danny have a talk while they're doing this. They discuss whether Daenerys can have children. They kind of share this tender moment with each other, um, and of course that's going to come into play later. Uh, Team Lannister re-enters the Dragon Pit. And Cersei pledges to f- for her army to fight alongside Team Targaryen in the north. Um, so big decision, which we later learn uh, she is faking. So anything else we want to say about this dragon pit scene before we move on, Joanna? Um, 
No, I guess I, I did like the fact that they were like the dragon pit is this cool historical structure in King's Landing um, where the dragons were once housed, where there was a huge dragon massacre. So I liked the touch that there were like dragon skulls on the floor of this place. Yeah, like like baby, I, I, baby dragon skulls. Well, the dragons, because they were raised in captivity, the dragons like eventually got no bigger than dogs, like towards mm. the, as they were dying out in Westeros. So I don't know if they were even babies. I think they were just like stunted pygmy dragons. But um, yeah, I just, I thought it was, um, a really evocative, beautiful setting. The the Italica ruins in Seville, Spain. Really good location scouting. Um, yep. Really added to everything. I thought locations this season have been incredible. Just like incredible location work that's shown us stuff we haven't seen before ever on the show. So uh, big fan of it. All right, Joanna, let's move on uh, to our favorite plotline this week: Winterfell. <laughs> uh, I'm being sarcastic, of course. Uh, sarcastic, of course. I mean, there was some nice stuff in the Winterfell plotline, but uh, the buildup. The buildup was a problem. All right, so a raven flies up north. Sansa finds out that John bent the knee to Danny. Littlefinger is trying to turn her against both John and and Arya. Um, and you write here he makes a misstep. What are you referring to there? Well, so there's a lot of different interpretations of how this whole Sansa Arya thing played out, and I think the show once again, like with the Hound in the Mountain interaction, I don't think the show did the best job of of laying this all out. My interpretation, you are free to disagree with me is that Littlefinger's uh, ploy was actually working on Sansa and Arya up until this last scene. He has alone with Sansa where he, so I believe all the episodes up until now, his plan was working. Um, and then in the scene with Sansa, he does that thing where he like plays the game with her and he's like, you know, I try to think of the person's like worst motivations and what could it be and blah, blah, blah. And he leads her down this little path. And the conclusion is that in doing all this, Arya would become the lady of Winterfell. And then Sansa realizes that that's the last thing that Arya would want. So Arya does not want to be the lady of Winterfell. And, uh, and so then I believe that's the moment where Sansa like turned and was like, oh, Oh, I see. <laughs> I'm being played. And then I think that's backed up by later. She says, when she's talking to him, she says, I may be a slow learner, but I learn. That's my interpretation of what happened this season. Other people choose to believe that Arya and Sansa were playing Littlefinger the whole time. That makes zero sense to me um, in terms of last week when it was just the two of them alone in a room with the bags of faces talking. Like, who were they performing for if they were performing for someone? So I really do feel like the turn came in this episode, but I don't think the show necessarily did a great job of making that clear. Yeah, Yeah. Uh, I would agree with you, Um, but they call Arya in. It's like, you know, she says, get my sister. They call Arya in. And then, whoa, reversal. It's Bailey who's on trial the whole time. Uh, you know, Jenna, I I rarely uh, am right on this podcast, but I did call this last week one of the easiest things to predict, predict ever, like mm. the uh, Mayweather-McGregor uh, fight, you know. But even though it was incredibly easy to predict and the odds were on my side, I still called it correctly. So I just want to point that out. Um, so what else happens? They spring the trap on Littlefinger. It's him who is on trial here. And Sansa uh, recites the litany of crimes uh, that he is accused of. And that's when you realize, well, what, like as she's saying all those things, wow, this dude's kind of impressive. He's architected virtually every major event in this entire show, right? Yeah. Uh, and he's done a lot of uh, of crazy stuff. Uh, 
you know, I thought it was a great performance by Aiden Gillen. Yeah. But I thought that the buildup was not done very well. And I think the reason is that I, I just I guess I don't believe that it would have played out that way. I feel like Baelish's response wouldn't be to confess, it would be to uh to deny, deny, deny. I, I just feel like he wouldn't have fallen to like the Jack Nicholson, Colonel Jessup trap from like a few good men kind of thing. Like he would he would have done something to get out of that situation. But that's my that's how I choose to think of Littlefinger. What's your opinion on that? Um, well, I think little. I, you know, here's what I think. I think the show went out of its way to engineer a scene that would mirror the season one scene where Littlefinger sort of betrays Ned Stark in the throne room. Um, and so, you know, they've said as much basically that it was all leading up to this moment. They wanted to like trick the audience into a last minute reversal. And that's sort of what happened with Ned Stark, right? Is like he goes into that throne room, Littlefinger says he's going to back him. And at the last second, like all the guards turn on, start killing the Stark men. Um, so that's what they wanted. I don't think they earned it. That being said, um, the little thing that we've seen up until now has never had to deal with a clairvoyant little kid like Bran Stark. So, you, you know, like I, I could see him sort of zagging when otherwise he might zig because here's Bran like dropping deeply held secrets that no one should know about Littlefinger's life. Um, and even, you know, and it's clear that Arya and Sansa and Bran all talked about this because – even Arya knows like about the Valyrian steel dagger and all this sort of stuff like that. So they've all like shared this information together. I would have loved to have seen that scene, but you know, they didn't want to show it to us cause they wanted this surprise instead. And, um, yeah. So I thought the performances were quite good, like especially from Sophie Turner and Aiden Gillen who have shared a lot of screen time together. They have been very constant scene partners. And so I really liked their performance, but I wish the setup had just been better for this moment. That makes sense. Yeah, I, I guess I'm thinking through like what would have made it better. I I feel like the the whole tension is premised on you actually believing that Sansa and Arya are are against each other, uh, or that they have good reasons for being against each other. And I just never believe that. You know, I I, I think people uh, pointed out uh, I saw on Twitter the other day. Arya was there when Ned was executed and Sansa was screaming bloody murder uh incredibly upset that ned was uh, about to be killed uh or that he had just died and why would that like if if sansa was really plotting against ned like why would she have acted in that way uh well i didn't rewatch baylor since that conversation came up but you know Arya does hop off the statue and is in the crowd Mm. like in the scrum and, and being told not to look during like the worst of Sansa screaming. Mm. So okay, it's possible no. that it's possible that she didn't see that part, but I haven't rewatched Baylor in the last week. Um, good, good, good call out though. Yeah. yeah. But the logic gap, the, the bigger logic gap is, is for Arya to call it Sansa for sort of, I don't know, um, playing along with, with Lannisters when Arya played along with Tywin for a whole season. Right, right. Do you know what I mean? Like that, it makes no sense. And so yeah. there's just a lot with the Arya and Sansa stuff that some people are trying to explain away by being a ruse the whole time. I don't think that's what the show is doing, but I understand why people w- would want that to be the case because it sort of helps make this nonsensical plot make a little bit more sense. But I, I don't know. I think they fumbled the ball here. That being said, 
I I really loved the aria and Sansa scene that yeah. came after. I really really loved that. It was a lot, great. So. It was a great scene. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and there's people in the chat room like kind of have uh, have said like, well, how like if uh, if the like for instance, if the aria Sansa scene afterwards was so good, like uh, wasn't it worth it to take the plot shortcuts? And I guess for me, it shouldn't be like a zero-sum game. You you can do the, the good character work uh, and still get to the same point. I think what I liked about this episode uh, overall is that, for the most part, characters behaved logically and in a way that honors everything that's happened until this point. Like, that's why I like this episode so much more than the previous two episodes, is that, for the most part, I mean, there was some silliness in there, we've talked about it, but for the most part, the characters are behaving like how we think they'll behave. And uh, I think that makes for more satisfying drama, ultimately. I have a big exception to that later, but yes. Yeah. Uh, especially, like, yeah, all, all that Dragon Pit stuff we talked about, that that all did feel very consistent and in character to yeah, me. Yeah, totally, so, totally. Yeah. So uh, back at Dragonstone, John's explaining how the Dothraki and Unsullied will get to Winterfell, uh, and John and Danny decide to sail north together. Like they're kind of, it's kind of interesting this this political game they're playing to like how is this like pageantry they're they're diving into? Like how how should we show up together? Because apparently that makes a difference for people, right? Like how you show up affects how people perceive you. And I thought it was interesting the show was kind of dabbling in those politics. Uh, and so they decide to sail north. Then John and Theon uh, have this amazing conversation about Ned Stark and all these emotions that have been building up for uh, years and years come to a head here. Uh, talk about what it means to have two identities, and they, this is something they've both gone through. Theon being a ward of the Starks, uh, John being a bastard child that he doesn't even know what his true origins are. Uh, very poignant, well acted by both people. Uh, I thought it was great. What do you think? Um, yes, I, I'm. You know, I'm on record as loving everything that Alfie Allen does. I think it's. It was sort of a very weird season for him because he got a little bit to do at the beginning, and then really not much in the middle. And then they gave him like these two sort of big juicy scenes back to back at the end. And I think that sort of disoriented some viewers because they were like, "Why are we spending so much time with Theon?" And I'm like, "Because Theon's a big character and he matters." Um, and so I loved the Theon and John stuff, not just because of what it meant for Theon now, but what it sort of means for John in the future, right? Because he's obviously, he's talking about himself, but he doesn't even know it because he's talking to Theon and saying like, Ned Stark was your father, even though he wasn't your father. And like, you know, you, you internalize his lessons and he stays with you. You can be both Stark and a Greyjoy. It's fine. And then like, we know that next season, probably unless Bran and Sam decide not to tell him ever, <laughs> But they seem determined to. But we know next season John's going to find out that he's not really Ned Stark's son and that, you know, he's both a Targaryen and a Stark and all this sort of stuff. And so um, it was it was it worked on those two levels. And I quite liked that a lot. Yeah. 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 So then Theon goes uh, and tries to exert his dominance uh, over the, some remaining Greyjoy men. Uh, the captain there almost kills him. But Theon, like, you know, runs back at him. And there's this moment when... Uh, the captain kicks him in the groin, only to find no reaction. Uh, that gives Theon his second wind, and he ends up like totally beating down that guy before winning back the loyalty of his men and going to save Yara. Uh, this scene resulted in my favorite shot of the entire season, 
that of Theon collapsing on the beach, having just spent all of his energy, uh, not only trying to win his men back, but also uh, kind of as a catharsis, like kind of getting, purging him, his old demons, purging Reek, purging uh, his cowardice from before. I thought it was a beautiful moment. Uh, but what do you think of the moment when you know he got kicked in the groin and there's that smile, like this controversial moment online? Some people thought it was very lame or cheesy. Uh, what was your reaction? I actually didn't mind it. I don't know, like it maybe it didn't need to happen so many times. <laughs> um, I just but... thought, like it, even for someone who doesn't have anything down there, it would still probably hurt a lot. That was my reaction. Um, yeah, I guess it. It's. I think they took the pillar and the what is it? The pillars, and, pillar and the stones. stones yeah. Is that the, is that the preferred nomenclature? Yeah. Um. Yeah. I mean, like someone was pointing out there, like that wound is probably like still infected or something right. like that. I was like, oh, probably. Uh. But you know, I guess the 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 symbolism of him turning uh like his one of his biggest like his biggest shame or his greatest weakness into a strength in this moment uh is a nice symbolism maybe it didn't need to like happen so many times but i don't know i just like alfie allen so much yeah uh, that it didn't bother me it didn't bother me either actually like i thought the only thing that bothered me about the scene was like how quickly the men uh join his side again is is there is it like a there's like a might makes right kind of iron islands thing though is that yeah yeah yeah. I, i think that's the thing like yeah yeah, if might make right is uh, is a great way of phrasing it. Yeah. Uh, all right, and that's the last we see of Theon this season. So then, uh, back to King's Landing. Jamie's making plans to march north of Winterfell. Cersei comes in and is just vicious to him. He calls him calls him the stupidest Lannister and yeah. tells him that hey, by the way, like all that stuff you saw, you know, uh, that was just for show. Uh, I was deceiving everyone. Uh, as those like. Uh, it was completely reasonable to expect that Jamie might know that, right? Um, so she explains that, hey, her plan is to let the army of the dead pick off the Targaryens and the Starks, and um, and she postulates correctly that one of the dragons is missing or is, is damaged in some way. Uh, they're going to get the Golden Company in Essos, right? The, the uh, mercenaries, is that right? Yes. The, the Golden Company will help them win this battle. And... Jamie is really upset because he is legitimately concerned about this army of dead people that's marching on them. The monsters are real. The White Walkers, the dragons, the Dothraki screamers, all the frightening stories we heard when we were young, they're all real, so be it. Let the monsters kill each other. And while they battle in the north, we take back the lands that belong to us. And then what? And then we rule. When the fighting in the north is over, someone wins. You understand that, don't you? If the dead win, they march south and kill us all. If the living win, and we've betrayed them, they march south and kill us all. The Targaryens and the Starks already want to kill us all. Most of them will die in the north. I faced them in the field. We can't beat them. We can't beat their dragons. How many dragons did you see at the pit? Two. What happened to the third? For all we know, it's guarding her fleet. She came here with her dragons and her Dothraki and her Unsullied. She came here to show us all her power. No, something happened. The dragons are vulnerable. We can't beat the Dothraki. We don't have the numbers. We don't have the support of the other houses. No, we have something better. We have the Iron Bank. Yeah, there's just, I think there's, I don't know. 
three to a thousand layers working on on this performance here. Nicola Costa Waldo is also another favorite of mine, as you all know. Um, and it's not just like his his altruistic concern for the army of the dead, but also this whole like you conspired with Euron and you didn't even tell me. Like what's happening here i thought it was us against the world and then she basically says yeah no i got a baby now so there's another lannister coming so i don't need you it's it, it's sort of a strangely hard swing for cersei in this scene i think i, I love this scene so i'm not really criticizing the scene yeah, but i'm I thought not it was sure great. i thought it's great yeah I'm, I'm not sure quite how she got to a place where she's so angry at jamie like she starts so angry at jamie maybe it's just like vestigial anger at, at her interaction with Tyrion, but um but she, uh, yeah, I, I just, I think it's so good. This is a moment I've been waiting for for so long because Jamie was done with Cersei like two books ago in, in the world of George R. R. Martin. And the show just kept them in this like really weird toxic feedback loop that I was just like, why Jamie big free. And, uh, you know, it seems, it seems like hopefully this is it. He's finally free of her. Uh, the look of frustration, anger, like it, it's that thing. I've had this happen to me. I don't know if this, you've had this happen to you when you're like, when you're friends with someone who can like be kind of shitty and say some like bitchy things about people, but you're like, they would never do it to me. And then they do it to you. And you're like, Oh, what? You were never supposed to turn that on me. And then you're like, Oh yeah, that's what I get for being friends with a shitty person. So, um, that personal anecdote aside, it's, uh, I don't know. I, I just thought it was a tremendous scene, really great performances, another top-notch uh, Lannister sibling scene. The look of hurt on Jamie's face when Cersei, like, kind of gives the okay to the mountain, who I guess she has, like, a telepathic communication with. Um, yeah, a lot of questions about, like, when she gives the okay to the mountain, why doesn't he, the mountain just kill him? My, the, the story I invented in my mind palace was yeah. that... Uh, giving the look is like prepare to kill someone and then she has to verbally confirm it you know that's kind yeah of what I yeah she like i almost i really almost feel like there's a telepathic connection because i feel like she's given a lot of different nods that have meant a lot of different things to the mountain and so i feel like he has to know on some instinctual level like what she wants in that given moment and like in that moment she didn't really want jamie to die Jamie knows it. The mountain knows it, you know, and if Cersei's being honest with herself, she knows it. So, yeah, I think there's something to that, Joanna. Uh, it's, it's, that also seems distinctly possible given what's happened. So anyway, uh, Jamie leaves, uh, and, oh, there's, there's another thing, by the way, that, that happens in this scene. Um, uh, Jamie says, I don't believe you, right? Is that what he says? Some of that? Yeah. And there's yeah. been, I, I've seen some chatter that some people don't know what that means. Like, what's that referring to? Like, is, does he not believe her about the pregnancy or something? Um, but I think he's just saying, I don't believe you, that you'll kill me, right? Yeah. Like, that's, that, that was, was our, my interpretation. Yeah, I think so too. Uh, and her willingness to send Jamie away feels like it confirms that she was pregnant. Because if she wasn't, like, she might not send Jamie away. But, like, the fact that she's pregnant emboldens her, I think, right? Yeah, that she won't be that as she builds her her dynasty, as she likes to put it. Uh, you know, it'll be for her and this baby, this Lannister, this purebred Lannister baby that's growing inside of her. Right. Um, and not just for her and Jamie uh, or her and Euron. So yeah. Jamie leaves, and as he places a glove on his hand, like a snowflake falls on it. I thought that was a beautiful moment, and. Uh, and then you see like lots of shots around King's Landing of just snow falling. It's like the show slowing down, taking its time, kind of just setting a mood, 
uh, which I just really appreciated. Uh, so love. And then one. the episode ended right here at the hour mark with yeah. the dreamy winter arriving, King's Landing, yeah. and that oh, was it. Right? Gorgeous, gorgeous. It's just really, really low key, fade sweet to bl- way to go. <laughs> fade to black. Amazing. Uh, no, no. <laughs> Sam visits Bran, um, and they have a conversation about what John's true heritage is. A lot of uh, a lot of memes coming out of this scene, John Robinson. Mm. Um, the first meme is about how, like, <laughs> like I tweeted one of these memes out about how Bran theoretically knows everything, but for some reason Sam needs to tell him that, um, you know, what happened with his secret wedding and and all that stuff. There's also another scene about like how uh, it was Gilly that put this whole thing together, and Sam's taking credit for her work. Um, so that's two separate issues and I have a feeling you have thought both of these out. So what say you about these? (laughs) Yeah. Um, some, you know, someone asked me, there's been a lot of debate about whether or not Bran can see the future. And when he's talking to Sam here, he says, I can see the past and the present. He doesn't say the future. I still swear to you that Bran can see the future, but that's, that's still sort of like a bit of a question mark, uh, up. Up going around the fandom, but uh, a way that someone described it on Twitter, and I so apologize because I did not write down their name, but they said, Bran is the internet and Sam is the Google search bar. <laughs> so like Bran knows everything, but it's up to Sam in this scene and hopefully in the future. Cause I really loved them together. This is the most human we've seen Bran in a long time. Uh, that uh, you need someone to direct you know, Bran is still a fledgling three-eyed raven, so he's not really good at, like, figuring out what he does. He knows everything, but he doesn't know what he knows. And so if Sam can direct him, then Bran can sort of figure it out. I, I, so wish, he, I wish more of that stuff that you said was in the show. Like, I, I don't think – I, I believe you. I believe that that's what the show is trying to communicate. I just wish – like, I wish we saw Bran – having that struggle you know struggling with his powers like you know seeing too many things seeing not enough things oh yeah um, you're right you, they, you know, should, like, they should visualize it he's said it in sort of weird vague terms to like sansa and stuff like that but i think you're right that if they which they kind of did last season you know because like those um the visions that he had last season uh of the mad king of like a bunch of other stuff it all came like super crazy fast and like jumbled you know what i mean yeah so maybe they they need more of that of like brand just like sort of trying and it's just like too much at once i really like that idea well just his demeanor this whole season has been like i'm above it all i know everything and if he knows everything dude like he should have known this massive piece of information i I guess like as a as a casual viewer or whatever the hell i am um, that's, that was my first reaction is this dude has been t- talking like he knows everything and he clearly doesn't because Sam just dropped this information bomb on him. So, or an, inc- an incest bomb as dare uh, as you, a- <laughs> how dare you <laughs> say information bomb when you shamed me about incest bomb last week. That's, it's my, bad. Um, that's my bad. Uh, so anyway, um, the, and the part, uh, about know, you, the part about Gilly, Gilly. as well. Oh, yeah. oh, okay, okay. So, yeah, so Sam, okay. So here's here's what happened, and the show just, like, did not really explain this very well. It's very frustrating. But, uh, you know, Sam says, I transcribed that maester's diary. So, basically, he had already transcribed the book that Gilly was reading. And the reason, like, like before, basically, we can assume he, he had transcribed it before Gilly read it out loud to him because um, he didn't have any time to transcribe 
after because he just like left. Right. So he transcribed it before Gilly read it. So Gilly's just reading a book that Sam has already transcribed, which is fine. And she's reading it out loud. So we, the audience can hear it, which is fine. But like, I wish in that scene then that Sam had been like, yes, yes, I know I transcribed that already or something like that. Like he's not paying attention to her. Uh, you know, which a lot of people decide to like pick up as this whole like men never pay attention to women thing or whatever. Like Sam was not paying attention to Gilly, and th- and then took credit for her work later, <laughs> and then took credit for her work. Like that's the narrative. I don't think that's the case. Like Sam had already read that book, right? He wasn't listening to Gilly in that moment at all because he was preoccupied with his own stuff, and that's something both genders do. But like Sam's not a bad dude; he wouldn't just like take credit for something that Gilly said. He had already transcribed the book. The show did not do the work to make that clear. So it definitely looked like Sam was taking credit for Gilly's work. And so I totally understand why people like felt that way. Well, so. especially cause like last time it sounded like it seemed like Sam was completely unaware of what Gilly was talking about. And then now he's like, Oh no, I know all this information. It just it was, was odd. I, I, everything you're saying makes sense to me. It's just like the way the show communicated was a bit odd. And I think like misunderstandings were, I, I mean, empirically misunderstandings did occur. So, uh, anyway, yes. All that being said, all of that is true. Did you like their dynamic? Because I really did. I thought it was okay. I mean, okay. I, I guess I was st- like, I was still kind of puzzling over how Sam even knew about the Rhaegar thing. You know, uh, as you as you mentioned, he already transcribed it. That's what Gilly was reading. It's not stuff I put together, right? Like I was thinking to myself, how did Sam know that? Uh, you know, that's what I was thinking. I wasn't focusing on how ma- how delightful their banter was. Um, well, oh, maybe oh, oh. you should have because, like, that's the the moment when when uh, when Bran's like, "Yeah, John's coming back here with Daenerys Targaryen," and Sam's like, "Did you uh, see that in a vision?" <laughs> and then Bran just like deadpan holds up the scroll. Like, that's that's those are jokes. They have jokes. It's jokes. It's and jokes. like, and Bran scenes have not worked for so long that I was just like delighted that one was working as far as I was concerned. Well, so. I think what was like a bit. Um, weird uh about that brand scene was that uh, as my fiance pointed out you know brand saying like we we have to tell john we have to tell john because he's the true heir of the iron throne right um why was brand saying like we had to tell john because he's a true heir why not we have to tell john because he's fucking his aunt do you know i just that because they're intercutting it with him he having wasn't looking because he wasn't looking at that part it's him, he had to say it that way because there's listeners and uh, listeners, readers, watchers at home who don't understand that John is the heir to the Iron Throne. Now they do. Fair enough. Fair enough. They didn't I understand mean, that, like, since he's Rhaegar's son, and since right, like, they're not reading our articles or listening to our podcast, and so there are people at home who need Bran to say in the words, "John is the heir to the Iron Throne," as he's like. <laughs> boning Daenerys uh, at the exact time uh, and you know and this being sort of a potential problem I'm having a real hard time you know they're, they're pitching this as this like huge potential problem for season eight of like Daenerys is going to you know Amelia Clark said basically like Daenerys wants a throne she's not going to share the throne with Jon she wants it this is a problem blah blah and I just don't understand like Jon wouldn't fight her for the throne like it doesn't matter if he's the real heir to the Iron Throne Jon would not fight her for the Iron Throne he'd be like you have it yeah. wouldn't he yeah. So I'm really worried that they're going to manufacture some conflict over this in season eight because I just don't think that this should be a problem. Like either they're, the incest isn't a problem for them and they get married uh, or, you know, John is just like, go ahead, take it. I don't really want it. You know, like I, I, 
I know it is going to be a problem because they keep saying it's going to be a problem, but I, I don't know how. Um, yeah, and be, this this season yeah. doesn't exactly inspire confidence in terms of uh, the manufacturing of uh, inorganic plot mo- like character motivations. I feel like that's been rampant this season. Um, uh, yes, I agree with you. Mike McGrain in the in the chat says that scene was so graceful and lovely, romantic, but they were talking about his heritage and made it gross. Yes, intentionally so, right? Like they intercut this. And I really love this, actually, because it felt like a um, a real rug pull, a good old classic George R. R. Martin rug pull of like, oh, you've been shipping these characters? Oh, you want them to be there? Cool. We're going to talk about how they're related and it's creepy right as they're doing it. And that's like that's – I felt like that was very classic Game of Thrones as far as I'm concerned. It is quite an achievement to go from making us disgusted uh, by incest in episode one of season one. To making people root for incest in you know episode seven of season seven, like that's the the, the show has come full circle. I think. Um, <laughs> Zach Melchert in the in the chat says, "When is someone going to sit George R. R. Martin down for an incest intervention?" It's a good mm. question. Um, now let me ask you a question. Yes. What What did you make of this shot? These shots of Tyrion, sort of like in the in the hallway outside, sort of looking down the hallway. Absolutely at- zero idea what the hell is going on. Um, but I, I know that you have written articles explaining it and I'm eager to hear your thoughts. Well, you know, people are, um, split on it. Uh, some people think it's purely political that like, uh, John already ticked Tyrion off early in the episode when he was like, uh, I'm, I'm Ned Stark's honorable son and I'm cannot tell a lie. And Tyrion's like, could you lie this once though? We're trying to politic here. And so he's basically like, Oh, he lies. All right. He lies down. (laughs) Okay. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm sorry. That was bad. That's okay. And, um, and so Tyrion, you know, Tyrion's like, I don't want this guy like having, you know, taking the, the primary seat of influence, which has been my position. Like I'm the hand I like when Cersei was talking to Tyrion about like, why do you believe in her? And he's basically like, basically his reason is like, she listens to me. <laughs> like, you know, so she's like, she wanted to burn down King's Land. He's like, yeah, but I talked her out of it because she listens to me. Cause I'm really smart and I know what I'm doing. All right. So like, that's the political side. There is, however, a possibility for a personal side. Um, Peter Dinklage in an interview before the season uh, said that Tyrion is smitten with Daenerys and that she should like not trust his counsel because he's like has these emotions, these feelings for her. And if you think back a little bit, you remember that like Tyrion is the one who sent Ser Jorah away. Tyrion is the one who told Daenerys to leave Dario and Marine, and he's the one who told her to go not go rescue John north of the Wall. So it's possible that they've been like trying to build up to this sort of Tyrion has feelings for Daenerys thing. I and and here's the other thing I'll say before I get to the fact that I don't think they've done their work on this. Um, I have been a little weirded out for a couple seasons by how asexual Tyrion has been since his sexuality and his like love of women was such a huge part of his character for so long. Um, yeah, like seasons one through three, pretty much. Even four, a yeah. bit, you know, and so. Um, you know, ever since he went to Essos, I mean, ever since he killed Shay and his dad, so you could be like, okay, maybe that would like put you off women for a while. Sure. But like Tyrion loves ladies. And so like the fact that he has been asexual has just been, yeah, it's just felt really weird to me. 
So like, I don't want to say that it, it doesn't make any sense that he would be in love with Daenerys because, um, you know, she's beautiful. He loves women. Cersei says in this episode, like she's just your type of foreign whore who doesn't know her place, like all this sort of stuff. But, um, and Peter Dinklage is such a good actor, but I, I just don't know that they have can like, this caught me very much by surprise. Well, as evidenced by the fact that there's a huge divisions as to what that scene actually meant, right? I yeah. don't think they if they if they wanted it to be unambiguous, they failed. Uh, maybe they wanted it to be ambiguous, and we'll find out next season. I suspect you're right. I, I actually like of all those theories, I suspect the Tyrion falling in love with Danny. Uh, well, no, no, no. I uh, yeah, I don't know. Actually, I don't know. I was going to say Tyrion falling in love with Danny is most possible, but the first thing you said about the politics and Tyrion I, being a trusted person like that that actually might be more I think convincing. Well, there's also, I think, room for both. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. That, that, like, he wants to be the most important person to Daenerys, whether it's as advisor or lover or whatever it is. And here's John who's just, like, you know, snuck into his place. The, you know, there's I, – I don't want to talk about this because I would probably consider it a spoiler. But if you want, you can go to VanityFair.com and read sort of about George R. R. Martin's original outline and some of the thoughts he had there about, like, Tyrion's role in the future of, of the series. Um, it's very – it's not going to play out as it did in George's, like, original outline, but there's maybe some hints as to where it might go. And Tyrion in the books at this point is actually in quite a very dark place, as he should be. You know, he killed his father and, and he killed Shay, And so they haven't really been doing that in the show, but it's possible that Tyrion could go kind of dark in season eight. That, that could happen. I just don't know that they've, like, laid enough groundwork for that. Uh, but we, we, we shall see. And, and I – I have been wanting some sort of conflict among our good guys in the final season because I don't want it to be the Night King versus all the good guys and and then Cersei down south being evil. So, you know, if there's if there's tension among the Starks and the Lannisters and the Targaryens, um, and if a lot of that tension comes from Tyrion, then that's, you know, that's at least interesting. There's also this prophecy, this is speculation as well, but there's also this prophecy that Tyrion, uh, that Daenerys received in the House of the Undying that she would be betrayed three times, one for blood, one for gold, one for love. And people, there's a lot of people who could have fulfilled this already, like Jorah or uh, Zarazon Daxos or all these other people. But some people are like, oh, is Tyrion the one who's going to betray her for love? Uh, and there's one final thing that I will say about this world <laughs> stuff yammering, which is that, uh, you know, as much of an issue that as Tyrion might have with all of this now, whatever jealousy he might have around John usurping his place, either politically or romantically, um, there's this whole question of who will ride a dragon. And there's always been this theory that it would be Tyrion and John and Daenerys would be the three dragon riders. That's been a very common theory among book readers. But now we're down to two dragons. <laughs> it's probably going to be Daenerys and John. But Tyrion has always wanted to ride a dragon his whole life. So, like, if not only does John like get the girl, but also gets to ride a dragon, and Tyrion doesn't, um, that might—I don't know. These are all things I'm thinking about for season eight. That's all purely speculative because I don't know anything. So, yeah. Gotcha. Uh, well, I think that's there's a lot of uh, possibilities to come with the Tyrion. Like, they're clearly fomenting some dissatisfaction with Tyrion. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I think we will see that play out in the final season, of course. Uh, and I agree. That could make things more interesting so long as it feels organic, which uh, Tyrion being bothered by this, I, I, it makes sense to me. 
there's many reasons why he could be bothered. It makes sense. So I, I don't have a problem with it. Um, Raymond Terry in the chat room is sort of, uh, <clears throat> in a nice way. I, I think this can sound like accused. He's calling me out or, or saying that I'm using the word asexual incorrectly. And I apologize. Uh, I, I think there is more nuance to that word than what I'm using it for. So I don't mean to use it incorrectly, but, right. um, I will say not, not been super sexually active. How about that? N- not yeah. sexually interested or not sexually interested when sex has been a big part of his character. And I mean, like, let's, let's be real. Like that was a very interesting because like, um, you know, Characters played by Peter Dinklage, guys who look like Tyrion Lannister, um, are often not portrayed as romantic leads. And so, like, that was that was an interesting part of Tyrion's character from the beginning that George R. R. Martin's like, no, you know, he might he might be short of stature, but like he's very, very sexually active. And um, for that part of his character to go away uh, the last few seasons has been sort of bothering me. So gotcha. We'll Final sequence. Uh Bran has a vision of Eastwatch. Beric and Tormund are there. The army of the dead show up. Uh, they roll up with a Viserion. We see him uh, breathe blue flame uh, and completely lay waste to Eastwatch completely. Like, it just is devastating. Uh, and they bring down that whole section of the wall, and then the, the army of the dead starts walking, walking through. Uh, so, a few thoughts on this. First of all, as many people have pointed out, uh, this begins... Uh, Christopher Hivju Hairwatch, right? Uh, do you think that Tormund and Beric are dead, or do you think they're alive? I think they're alive. Because we don't see them die, and they, 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 they seem to be running away, and they probably got away safely, right? Yeah, I've watched it a couple times. I, I think it could go either way, but it looks like they're running to the west, like sort of away from the part of the wall that crumbles. Um, and so if they didn't try to go down the stairs, which it looks like they didn't, then maybe they'll like, it's possible that they'll just survive by walking along the top of the wall all the way to the next post, um, which is something that they could do. I don't think they're dead. Um, I don't think that they would go out like they, they would show them being engulfed in flame or something. Do you know? Um, which is another sort of somewhat silly cliffhanger. But I do want to say something about really quickly about death cliffhangers that someone pointed out to me. I was bitching about this the last couple episodes, what with Jamie and Arya last season and John and the ice pond, et cetera, et cetera. Um, yeah, don't forget Sansa and Theon jumping off the castle. Sansa and Theon jumping off the castle. And someone pointed out to me that George R. R. Martin actually does this all the times in the time in the books, which yes. is – thousand percent true so george r R. martin like will end a chapter with like ned stark having a dagger pressed to his throat and then like you don't get your next ned chapter for like a while so this you know i i've called the show out on this repeatedly i still think the show does it in a kind of lame way but uh it is something martin does as well so i should be legit about that Yeah. yeah Yeah. Uh, this wall coming down, even though I knew it was going to happen, looked freaking amazing. Looked so good. Viserion looked so good. The blue flame looked great. Um, I liked that Tormund and Beric were there, even if there's a dumb cliffhanger, because it was nice to like have characters we know and are rooting for, like taking all this in. Um, the soundtrack was great. Um, Ramin Javadi composed two new scores. One is called Winter's Here. One is called Army of the Dead. Two new songs. Um, yeah, I just, I thought it was fantastic. I should say for the record, I thought the wall was going to come down because of Bran. I'm probably wrong. Like it's possible that still possible that Bran crossing the wall 
did break the charms on the wall, and that's why Viserion was able to uh, melt it. But probably not. Probably yeah. it's just Se- seeming less and less likely all the time. Probably just dragon. Um, but also the people who said that they would just w- the army of the dead would just walk around the wall were also wrong. So I was one of those people. Record, I was one of those people. You, so. I don't think you really bought that theory. Yeah. Okay? <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> All right, yeah, right? I, th- I thought it looked great. Uh, yeah. I, I, what I, my uh, experience of it was was uh, fun because I was trying to figure out what the dragon was doing, like because he wasn't killing the people; he just kept shooting the middle of the uh, wall, and then of course it ends up collapsing. Um, but yeah, I was kind of interested at in, like the the dragon tactics that were being used. Uh, but it looked awesome. It looked threatening. Again, I couldn't help but feel that gnawing sensation at the back of my mind that. Uh, the whole idea that they have the dragon in the first place is because of that stupid, stupid plan that didn't even work. But again, trying to stuff that part of myself down into the deepest depths of my soul uh, and be okay with it. And if I was able to do that successfully, I probably would have said uh, one of the greatest scenes of all time. So it was was really well done. Well, yeah. One of the things that I thought was really interesting is in the behind the scenes interview, um, Benioff said, for many years now, we knew this would be the ending of the penultimate season. So there's, you know, there's this thing that um, Weiss and Benioff uh, met with George R. R. Martin in a hotel room in Santa Fe. And he told them like them the ending of Game of Thrones many, many years ago. Uh, three years ago, something like that. And so this is like clearly on the list, like bullet point, bullet point, Shireen burns to death, bullet point, Hodor dies. And this is like the sad causal timely why reason why bullet point, the wall comes down. And so they're like, okay, penultimate season ends with the wall coming down. Last season is us dealing with the ramifications of that. Um, I don't know. I just thought that was interesting. So there you go. All right. Well, we have much more to discuss on next week's episode of this podcast. Uh, we have your emails at acastofkings@gmail.com, uh, and your reflections on this season, your reflections on what you want for future seasons, our reflections on the same. In the meantime, John Robinson, uh, final thoughts on this week's episode. Um, I am so thrilled <laughs> that we um, – liked it because it's always more fun. You know, even though we have some criticisms of like mostly Winterfell based, uh, it's always so much more fun for me when we all can talk about an episode that we liked, uh, even though it's okay for you and I to not like an episode, uh, it's more fun this, uh, this way. So I was, I, the same thing happened to me last year when I didn't like the battle of the bastards and then I really love winds of winter. Uh, so I've just got to remember this next year when I don't like the penultimate episode. (laughs) We'll be like, it'll be better in the finale, Joanna. Uh, So I'm glad it was better in the finale. Yeah, I mean, I guess for for me, uh, this is just my personal thoughts that aren't shared by a lot of people I know. But I feel like uh, that when you don't like something or when we have significant critiques of something, uh, it makes us value what the show does right even more. You know, Uh, when there is a bad episode and then there's a good one. It's like, Oh, like this is what the show does really well. Like, and th- that wouldn't exist if we just unabashedly loved every single episode. Um, this episode in particular, I thought was a solid finale. Uh, it ends in a pretty, uh, different place than any other finale. I think, uh, well, not any other finale, but like, uh, there are some, I think some of the finales, right. Ended with, uh, with white walkers, at least one or two other ones. But, uh, again, 
I returned to the statement. Yeah, season two. I returned to the statement I made earlier in the podcast, which is it had characters we know really well and love acting in ways that make sense to those characters. Uh, and that's ultimately all I'm asking for from this show. Uh, and I, I think this season as a whole has had a lot of ups and downs in that regard. But this episode did a lot to bring me back into uh, into the fold. And so overall, solid finale. Uh, a lot of great stuff in there. A lot of beautiful moments, especially between characters we haven't seen together for a very long time. Uh, and I, 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 I overall enjoyed it. Glad you did too. Much more to discuss next week. In the meantime, John Robinson, where can you find more of your work on the internet? Uh, you can find me on VanityFair.com or you can follow me on Twitter at Joe Wrote This. You can hear me talk about spoilers in this season, which like it won't spoil you because the season's over, over on the really fun other Game of Thrones podcast I do called Storm of Spoilers. Find all my stuff at DaveChen.net. Um, I do another podcast called The Slash Filmcast at SlashFilmcast.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. <laughs>